What's up, everyone? Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that Justin Pearl and I had recently with A.J. Turner, uh, who's a graduate student at Drew, working in the areas of psychology of religion, uh, William James and religious naturalism, sociocultural psychoanalysis, and so on. This episode is a little unusual uh, in the sense that we haven't typically carried forward conversations from social media onto the show, uh, but I think it made a lot of sense to to do that in this case, uh, first of all, because the way AJ's observations uh, center around Clayton Crockett's energy and change, uh, which you may know we've been exploring in some detail, and then just as a matter of ongoing personal interest around the intersections and or uh, missed connections between pragmatist process relational thought and radical theology, uh, which has been an interest of mine for a while, uh, but, it, but it's also one I haven't really pursued very rigorously or certainly not systematically. Although I will say I've been really enjoying uh, recently two collections of essays from the early 70s um, that actually Justin turned me on to them. One of them is a uh, critique and response to Altizer, uh, that one was edited by John Cobb. Uh, and then the other one has a bunch of essays on Cobb's work. And there's entries there from Altizer, Mary Daly, uh, Ponenberg, David Tracy, and so on. So, yeah, it just seems like there was some really interesting conversations happening back then. And I think I want to sort of present our talk with AJ as a way of tentatively picking that conversation back up. I'd really love to facilitate more of these kinds of conversations between what I think are sibling uh, theologies, philosophies of change and difference. I, I always feel like I need to qualify <laughs> that, you know, I, it's not that I want to minimize the, the differences or, or collapse them into uh, the two traditions into some synthesis, but I am interested in uh, sort of without taking Altizer to be normative in uh, a way that, that could delimit thought around a radical process theology. I don't know if this is a worthwhile project, uh, but my sense is there's something there worth exploring further. So toward the end of one of the essays I was just talking about, uh, there's this little excerpt here from Altizer I came across the other day, um, and I, I figured I'd include it here in the intro. He asks... Does a Whiteheadian dipolar conception of God make possible either an eschatological understanding of Christ or a Christological understanding of eschaton? Surely this is one point at which Whiteheadian and Hegelian theological thinking could engage in fruitful dialogue. And perhaps the course of this dialogue will reveal that each is closer to the other than either is to any other system of thought. After all, both are genuine forms of process theology just as both are full and genuine expressions of modern thinking. Is there any other contemporary theological movement about which these judgments could be made? I think these are questions worth picking up. Uh, so yeah, uh, to be continued. All right, here's our conversation with A.J. Turner. Peace. Peace. 
what is your uh, dissertation on? I am writing basically a radically empiricist reconstruction of critical theories in order to argue for ontological pluralism as the basis for agonistic solidarity. Very cool. Sounds dope. So, I mean, along those lines, just in case we publish this, give us a sense of who you are. I don't know that much about you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I I guess I consider myself like an interdisciplinary scholar um, who is a specialist in histories of psychoanalytic, psychodynamic theory and um, uh, American pragmatism in the broad sense. And I did my Master of Arts at Union Theological Seminary in New York City in their psychiatry and religion program with a woman named Ann Ulanov. Uh, that's why I went there. And then along the way, I got picked up into um, some other forms of philosophical theology and kind of fell backwards into the PhD program at Drew University uh, because of my connections with Robert Corrington. Um, I was obviously aware of and very interested in uh, the work of Catherine Keller uh, before going there, but I, I did go there to work with Corrington, but I am now, uh, Corrington had to retire um, in, oh gosh, and was it now, 2020, I think, and Catherine very graciously picked me up, and we are completing that. I am in the throes of writing the dissertation, and yeah, that's enough. Yeah, very cool. So uh, I'm curious about like that trajectory. I mean, obviously you're in you're in academic space now, but you mentioned earlier that you were working for the church in, in some capacity. Was that your sort of bridge into an interest in theology and that sort of thing? And has that has that sort of changed over time? Or that's an interesting question because in one sense I was never interested in being a theologian. Uh, you know, kind of in the in the traditional ways. Uh, but I did grow up in the uh, kind of Midwestern standard Bible Belt evangelical forms of Christianity. Um, I went to two different undergraduates, and one was free Methodist, and then the other one was uh, kind of broadly reformed. And uh, so I got a I got a really interesting swath of theologies in between uh, Arminian and uh, Calvinist. But it was in my undergraduate program that I became obsessed with psychoanalytic theories of religion, particularly of the like post-Freudian kind. Uh, so Ernest Becker, Eric Fromm, Rollo May, um, and even Carl Jung to a certain extent. And that's how I found the program at Union and decided to go there. And I was always very clear kind of along my own personal identity lines, like, oh, like what theologians are doing in a certain sense is not what I'm interested in doing versus what psychoanalysts and psychodynamic theorists of religion uh, were doing with theological concepts and and exploring them, particularly like Eric Fromm and Ernest Becker are doing a sociology or cultural anthropology of of depth depth psychology. And so, you know, uh, Eric Fromm, Rollo May, Karen Horney, uh, Carl Rogers, uh, they were all personal friends of Paul Tillich. And that's how I learned about Tillich's work and read A Decent Grip of Tillich before going to Union. Um, I still love Tillich a lot, but again, it just kind of depends how you're going to take the concept. So I often break it down and say theologians are a little bit more interested in um, clarity of concepts and circumspection of ideas around the divine more than kind of the human contribution of the birthing of the gods. Um, And a lot of people, when they hear that second phrase, they think sociology 
like theories of power through like Foucault or Derrida or anything like that. But actually, I don't find that those uh, theorists are all that helpful either versus neo-Freudian, post-Freudian, humanistic and even object relations traditions in psychoanalysis. They're doing something very, very different than what those who are influenced primarily by um, a kind of post-Hegelian or Heideggerian, Sartrean existential phenomenology, uh, because each of those figures, they if they were deep readers of those kind of European, French and German existentialists, they also every time pushed back on them in very key ways that are much more radically empiricist. All of them were readers of William James and John Dewey, and they also uh, were much more interested in... <laughs> the material of evolutionary theories and even uh, they were some of them were readers of Whitehead as well. You mentioned Tillich there, you know, that was my, my first encounter with Rollo May was um, that, that really phenomenal autobiography he does of Tillich. And it's like the, that sort of um, that that strange psychoanalytic autobiography, Uh which is, is a, I think a really nice contrast to the, um, uh, the Hannah Tillich, uh, oh, yeah. sorry, I said autobiography. Sorry, uh, biography. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, so it's it's quite a, a contrast to the Hannah Tillich biography, which is much more matter of fact and is it is exactly. many ways you know much more kind of cutting and critical in a way that Rollo May is sort of that you know defawning good friend uh, who just wants to tell the story about about his good friendship in in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, having read that, um, Rollo May was a, a a student at Union who studied with Tillich in Tillich's first couple of years there. And he did a bachelor's of divinity degree, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then went on to be a, a practicing psychotherapist for many years and they maintained correspondence for well over two decades. Um, and so, yeah, the, the kind of intimacy that he felt that he had, uh, specifically through discussion groups over the years, uh, there were these discussion groups that they had about once a month, um, with again, Karen Hornive, um, Eric Fromm and Carl Rogers were frequently there, um, among other figures, but um, those are kind of the the big names. Yeah, I wonder if maybe that's a good place into the conversation, because Tillich is a fairly influential figure for radical theology. Um, So maybe maybe that's kind of a, uh, not a meeting point exactly, but a sort of we can we can think of him as maybe like a a friend of a friend of uh, many worlds, a sort of a pivotal figure in this conversation. He, he plays for both teams. He plays for both teams. <laughs> well, both teams will claim him. Whether or not he plays for both is a different question. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to I don't want to go there, but exactly. I mean, I, at least one of the things that I think is common, I guess, between those two kinds of general camps is, as you were saying, right? As as much as those explorations and projects are either sociological or theological in different ways. I think they're also dealing with the secular in a meaningful way. And, you know, and I'm thinking specifically about Tillich's theology of culture. All right. You commented on Facebook and you were making an extended observation slash, I want to say it's a critique. I'm not really sure uh, where, where the critique rest up if it has something to do with content or if it has something to do just kind of with a lack of engagement by radical theologians in general historically with the pragmatist tradition and the idea that picking up on some of the things that Clayton Crockett is writing about in energy and change and the emphasis on new materialism or uh, this is the thing. I'm not even sure you can say there's really too much of an emphasis on new materialism within radical theology. That's, I think that's a small camp. Um, I would agree. 
Yeah. So I'm not sure how much it helps to make these kinds of generalizations, but I think the questions that you were raising were really good ones. And I don't, I, maybe you just want to kind of reconstruct that for us or summarize sure. what it is that you were saying and we can get into it. Yeah. I think I come into this discussion at the interstices of this emerging discourse that seems to be happening around the presence of radical theologians. And then some of them finding what they think of as allies or uh, ways of extending or improving or um, developing radical theology in exciting ways to them through these other theoretical potential allies or constructive interlocutors with particularly new materialism. Um, and really, as far as I know, as far as I can tell, the very first engagement of radical theology and new materialism was Crockett and Robbins' 2013 book. And before that, I don't I don't know that that exists. I, I'll be the first to admit, like I'm I'm not a specialist in radical theology, but I come into this kind of confluence of things somewhat self consciously as an outsider, and I start with a kind of observation that then turns into what is for me some confusion, and then perhaps even yeah, kind of more of a critique there. Um, and there are ways in which I would be willing to say, all right, this is where I'll critique, even though I'm, I'm trying to say, trying to be like respectful and, and say like, ah, I don't, you know, I just, I truly want to understand. So I did sit down with the ideas a little more. I got a little deeper into energy and change. Um, and for me, the observation is the sociopolitical projects of tackling climate change in particular with energy and change. And the prospects of the, the, the kind of moral tenacity of uh, radical theologies in general, as I understand them, is, is interesting. And uh, I think it's admirable. And I think radical theologies could be considered sociopolitical allies with the process relational and radically empiricist and pragmatic naturalist strains of theology. And yet I find this curious chasm between the two. And a caveat that I'll add to that is I know plenty of theologians who are claiming a certain lineage within process relational and radically empiricist or religious naturalist frameworks that are in some ways or another engaging some versions of radical current radical the theology. Um, but they're also doing that in a kind of critical way. And I'm not sure until this book, Energy and Chains, that I see much going the other way. But then the other caveat is I also don't see radical theologies as they are branching out and looking past the death of God discourse. Because honestly, if you would ask me a couple of years ago, until really Mike Hogue's book on um, American imminence, what radical theology is, I would have, again, not as a specialist, I just would have said, oh, it's death of God theology. That's what radical theology is. And people who identify as radical theologians are operating with some kind of specter of the death of God, uh, which is certainly not process relational or uh, pragmatist or uh, religious naturalist uh, kinds of frameworks, because for the past 150 years, really, ever since the metaphysical club, they never really had the kind of God that could die in the first place. Uh, then you do have Mike Hogue's radical eminence, where he's naming himself as a as a, a certain variation of radical theology. And now you have energy and change a few years later, where Crockett is very much saying this is a radical theology, but uh, it's a new materialist cosmotheology. And 
I find this all very, in one sense, very fascinating. In another sense, I'm saying, if we're socio-political allies, how come there isn't more engagement between the two? Because again, before Crockett's book, if you wanted to talk about uh, very material theories of evolution, of uh, physics and the quantum sciences, uh, I would have said, oh, well, then you need to read Catherine Keller or Wes Wildman or Philip Clayton or Robert Neville or any of those figures. I, I would have said there are no resources within radical theology to deal very de- seriously with that. And then as I read Crockett, there already are a lot of theological engagements with these ideas. Where are they? It's almost as if Crockett feels like he needs to re-engineer the whole project, which further confusing. Oh, interesting. Am I still there? Yeah, you're, you're still here. It definitely something just changed, though, because you can tell it's a different microphone now. It sounds different. <laughs> okay. It, it sounds just, oh, no. as, just as good. Yep. Okay. Um, so the further confusion then is, um, it appears on the page almost as if either those discourses don't exist, right? So like evolutionary theories and theology, Wes Wildman science, science and religious anthropology, you know, he calls it a spiritually evocative, um, naturalistic interpretation of human life, uh, in which he calls human beings not merely incidentally religious, but ontologically and inescapably religious. And then just rolls through one of the most comprehensive accounts of evolutionary biology that's uh, from any theologian ever. And it's existentially potent, he calls it. Same with uh, many, many versions of process theology that are engaging uh, these theories of science, whether it's in several different uh, avenues. And on the page, it appears as though Crockett uh-huh. feels like he has to like He's doing this work for the first time or something. Um, I I know that Justin has some things he probably wants to say, but what I would just say initially is I think you're right in terms of where Crockett is kind of coming from and that what he's doing, as I understand it, and as I understand him as situated within the broader radical theological landscape is that, you know, the turn towards metaphysics is kind of more of a recent occurrence. It's not even very popular, I would say. No, um, I don't think that's true anymore. I think that was true. I don't think it's true anymore. I'm just saying kind of like in a general sense. Um, and then the other thing is there aren't that many active radical theologians. So you have a yeah. handful to choose from, really. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Go ahead, Justin. So I, I'm with with Matt. I, I think the first thing to say is I think you're right. I think what um, Robbins and Crockett have been doing, and, and I think there are a few other people that you could throw in there as well. I think Karen yeah. Bray is on the periphery of this kinds of yeah. conversations. Um, I think maybe Jordan Miller in his own kind of way uh, is on the periphery of some of these conversations, right? Um, I think that this is a, a massive shift within the field of radical theology, but I think it's helpful to situate where this is coming from, because it's actually, I think, the second major shift in radical theology. So I think it's like, why was there, you know, 25-ish years, I think you could say, maybe 30, depending on who you ask, um, where radical theology, with the exception of basically like Thomas Altizer and Ray Hart, who coincidentally, I think it's, uh, or I should say not coincidentally, was teaching at BU with Wildman, with Neville, was in conversations yep. with them. With the yeah, exception absolutely. of Ray Hart and Altizer, no one was doing metaphysics for 25 years in radical theology. Why? And I, I mean, yeah. in some sense, I think it comes down to 1982, the publication of Deconstruction and Theology. I think this yeah. was a world shatteringly important text. I mark the publication of that book as the moment where radical theology leads the death of God movement and becomes primarily focused on questions around, uh, primarily around language, right? Because it's it's this yeah. kind of, it's the 
the first wave of American deconstruction. So we're not talking John Caputo, right? We're talking about yeah. the Mark Taylors and the Winquists and all the these Winquist, people. Yeah. And they're really interested in thinking about yeah. language and thinking yeah. about words and you lose materiality entirely. And I think that <laughs> one of the ways to understand what's happening with Robbins and Crockett and this, this kind of, you know, uh, Noel Vahanian and this, this whole kind of like kind of current crop of radical theologians, like maybe the third wave, I guess you could call them, right? Is that in some ways, uh, I think it's a response to that lack of materiality that you had during that that very Derridian second wave. And and this is part of why I think John Caputo is such a, a strange figure here. I, yeah. He kind of straddles two bounds. And you can see it in his own work, his early work. Uh, I should say his early radical theology work, not his his actual early work, which is all very <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Anyone who hasn't read John Caputo in the 90s, you should read him. He was he was very cool in the 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, his early radical theology, something like weakness of God and stuff like that, right? You have this more kind of second wave feel to it, although there is the Catherine Keller, which helps, but it's really, he's been getting more and more material and very much more new material as he's been going. So he's been following that wave as well. And in some ways is, a, is like a hinge figure. And so I think trying to answer the question, right. And I apologize. I'm, I know I'm rambling a little bit, right. Trying to answer the question, why does something like energy and change, like right. Crockett's book, why does it feel so new and so cutting edge? And I think it's because it's, it's in many ways, the kind of clearest exemplar of how this third wave of radical theology is doing something incredibly different than the second wave of radical theology was, which is also, sure. for what it's worth, I think very different from that kind of death of God first wave. And I think also just to add to that, as with much of the sort of Whiteheadian and pragmatist schools, is not starting off with these very sort of grounded metaphysical assumptions. It's all very sort of tentative and sort of, yeah. <laughs> I feel like radical theology is kind of feeling its way into its right. own its own version of a metaphysical landscape that's not necessarily willing to go we're just not willing to go all the way with whitehead that's, and that's, and, and yeah. maybe as, as a, a way of, of getting back right i i to, to bring you back into the conversation a little bit you know <laughs> uh to use uh you know intentionally loaded language right why is it so un-american right um why is it so uh the materialism that you find in radical theology right now is a very kind of delusian materiality and i think yeah. you're pointing to something really interesting which is that radical empiricism is still mostly absent uh, and i think that's a really interesting question and, and i'd want to want to maybe pass the ball to you and ask the question, how might radical theology look different if these radical empiricist voices that that are in places like Robert Neville and stuff, if those voices started getting reincorporated into radical theology, how might it look a little different? Well, I don't think it would be radical theology anymore because they would resist the the label, or at least pretty much all of them, except for Mike Hogue, resists the label of radical theology. I mean, Let's remember timelines here, like Robert Neville and John Cobb wrote their first books in 67-ish, right? And they're both still alive, and they're both pretty active, and they both have systems, and they both, you know, and, and those systems don't agree exactly, right? Like, there are a lot of intramural debates in this solidly 100-year history of theological dealings with radical empiricism, uh, because, again, for whatever reason, those who are really kind of in the oxbow of a more like kind of post-Heideggerian continental post-structuralist way of approaching theology don't seem to be aware, or they don't evince awareness of the deep, deep influence that William James had on a pretty much every facet of, of anything that could be considered progressive uh, theology uh, in the U.S. And that influence was consistently by Europeans rejected 
very consistently and usually on really bad misinterpretations, whether you want to move through the Frankfurt schoolers, uh, through uh, various post-structuralists and other Marxists, they each had their really bad readings. And that inheritance has seemingly secreted into those figures who call themselves radical theologians. And that's what gives me some pause and also some confusion because I I don't know Clayton Crockett, but I I uh, I have met him. I I like him as a human. He's a series editor that's helping to publish guys like Mike Hogue. He is crediting and engaging with Catherine Keller a lot. He's working with Mary Jane Rubenstein's uh, pan theologies, and yet radical empiricism is the fabric of what they're doing, and it does upset some of the core commitments, right? And this is this is why someone like Richard Rorty in Consequences of Pragmatism in like 1982 is saying, yeah, I truly believe that uh, that Dewey is waiting at the end of the road, the end of the dialectical road that Foucault and Derrida are currently traveling. Uh, and then we're in the 20 teens through up till now in 2023, and I'm looking at the, the reassertion of materiality and I'm like, the issue is not that you're coming into materiality. There are, to me, three dangers, kind of three chief dangers with the way that it's happening. The first is it, it can border on a kind of intellectual imperialism in which you're ignoring an entire set of, of theologians who have already been working with these ideas for the last solidly 50 to 100 years. I don't think that's what he's doing. I'm not accusing Crockett of doing that. Um, especially because of how deeply he engages Mary Jane Rubenstein and Catherine Keller in particular. But there are a lot of notable, radically empiricist silences in his work. It's almost as if that entire book is constructed to ignore the word empiricism, which is a very key word for Deleuze in particular, right? Um, Deleuze calls himself a transcendental empiricist. Deleuze's uh, teacher, Jean Val, was a big reader and one of the only guys who was publishing on Whitehead and James in France in the um, interwar period, right? Like, this is a big part of who Deleuze is. It's not the main part. It's not, I wouldn't even say it's the highest part, but it's a big part and it's there. So that's one huge danger is a kind of intellectual imperialism. The second danger is just getting getting the history history of like progressive theology wrong. Go read Gary Dorian. Go read Gary Dorian's students like Demi and Wheeler. Like this is all very, very clear. It's been documented. It's been outlaid. These debates about, you know, pantheism versus panentheism, the size of God, the role of evolution, the meaning of, of Einstein and Whitehead's mathematical theories of reality. Like those are debates that have been hashed out for decades in the 20th century. So the second danger is getting, is getting that history wrong. And then the third danger, the one that I care most about is really just about uh, commonality, solidarity, and theoretical like robustness. If New materialism and new materialist cosmotheologies act as if the pragmatic naturalist and process relational debates that have been going on for decades never happened, then they're going to rehash those same debates, right? And I want sociopolitical solidarity. That's what I'm interested in. And I'm like, hey, let's all read each other and like, not necessarily to treat each other with kid gloves, right? Like, let's come at each other. Like, I'm, I'm down for like some real differences in the way that we approach concepts. Um, I'm down for that. But if we are not even reading each other, and this is my critique towards process relational, 
in the 1990s, you would see a spate of books by process relational and other pragmatist theologians, basically just kind of dismissing continental theorists altogether. You know, Robert Neville in 1992 wrote a book called The High Road Around Postmodernism, where he opens up the book. He opens it up saying, yeah, so there's this bad of like linguistic, you know, deconstructive, deconstructive uh, theology. And the tools are really simple. You can learn them in about 15 minutes. And then you can kind of figure out their history of theology in another uh, hour long lecture. And like, it's just all a sham. So I'm going to show I, you. I, the I, way. Yeah. And, and I can confirm he was still definitely teaching that in 2010 when I was taking classes with him. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and I, I think the last time I saw him in person was probably at, you know, one of the ecstatic naturalism congresses for Robert Corrington's work. He and I engaged a little bit around like liberation and contextualist theology. And I'm and I'm not saying he was dismissive, like, oh, those aren't important or something like, but he just was like, no, I'm like, he thinks the the cutting edge, the frontier, um, the really important stuff in theology is, and I mean, he was writing his systematics at the time, you know, that's what he thought. And I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with him in a hard sense, but I am saying like, there is this sociopolitical edge that we can find ourselves in alliance on. And a lot of the same ideas that um, uh, that Crockett breaches in his engagement with Rubinstein and Keller in that final chapter, uh, that's what uh, Mike Hogue did in American Eminence. He does that through James Dewey and Whitehead. Um, and I'm not saying that they are saying the same thing. I am saying that because Crockett doesn't engage this tradition in a really deep way, I have no idea if he's saying the same thing or if he's going further. So far, my reading is, oh, Okay, you're you're kind of like a process relational theologian, you know. Uh, the whole God has changed thing, like Cobb and Hartshorn hashed that out in the fifties and seventies. Keller gave that an incredible spin, particularly in Face of the Deep, you know, in two thousand two. Um, so cool. Is there more, or is it different? I think there's like three interesting critiques. My question slash maybe not as much a pushback um, in the sense that I think those are wrong as much as like kind of pushing for uh, an additional clarification um, would be those are largely concerns like citational concerns, right? About who is citing who or those sorts of things. The question I would want to ask is more of a constructive question, right? Because I'm, I'm, you know, admittedly not super interested in, in who's citing who. I'm interested in the idea. So the question yeah. I would want to ask is like not not a question of could we convince you know Robert Neville to call himself a radical theologian? Because obviously no, the answer is <laughs> absolutely not, right? But for the radical theologian, hey, so say I was to say I'm going to write a new book as a radical theologian, and I want to draw in ideas from Dewey uh, and ideas from this kind of radical empiricism tradition. Do you know? I start reading a lot of Dewey and James, which I actually like Dewey and James, so that this is fine. Um, and I start putting a lot of those in. What do you think that they could offer that we couldn't get through the sources that radical theology is already engaging? Right? What are the ideas uh, that Deleuze can't give us that Whitehead or Dewey yeah. could give us? You know that um, you know Catherine Malibu can't get us that yeah. that these other thinkers. So, what content-wise do you think is is ripe for moving radical theology in interesting new directions? I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, it would be a different relationship to intellectual history. Pragmatists, radical empiricists, process relational thinkers, they hashed out a very different relationship to Kant and Hegel in particular. When I say that, I also mean to say that their epistemology, their epistemological methods are very different, and their ontological commitments 
are very different because I and I am kind of making this a thesis because of the way that they relate differently to Kant and Hegel. Um, and so I actually do think that uh, Hegelian dialectics in particular represent a, a kind of um, recursive attempt to prove its own proof. And in that sense, it gets locked into a set of aporias that it thinks are aporias, right? For example, you don't get Heidegger in the obsession of being without that kind of a relationship to Kant and Hegel, right? He wrote one book and gave two book-length lecture series on figuring out Kant's um, metaphysic so that he could outdo Hegel. And that was all between 1927 and 1935. Um, and it, I often say that, that Heidegger's most important book actually is Kant and the, and the problem in metaphysics, because it's a, it's a fulcrum in between being in time and then his later work, right? Like, if a hundred percent agree on that. That is his best book by far. Yeah. So if you want to talk about uh, the turn or not, you've got to talk about that book because that's the fulcrum. Um, and I've, you know, I've gotten down with all, all the all the Heideggerians and all their debates about that. Um, Corrington is hilariously Heideggerian and not all at once. Um, Corrington is one of the most slippery motherfuckers out there. And that's in between 1927 and 1935. But in 1910, James is just like, ah, being is the darkest of all hallways. <laughs> We're all beggars there. You can try to find this, this dogged search for origins, but it's not going to lead anywhere good. You know, like basically is what he says. And he also says in a pluralistic universe that like this entire way of thinking and being itself is a kind of trap that you need to work yourself out of. There are certain problems you need to let go of because it's an intellectualist fallacy that we're going to solve them. And that is one thing that I think uh, James Dewey and Whitehead uh, get really, really well. And they give you a way to move forward and a way to turn your attention to to a set of methods and criteria that can render which problems are tractable and when you need to leave certain problems at intractable, right? And so it's really no wonder that to me, some of the most potent theories of uh, agonistic uh, democratic organization are all calling coming from people who are deeply impacted by this same radically empiricist tradition, whether that's Bill Connolly um, uh, or Chantal Mouffe, right? Um, like, like those people are reading those, those folks. So in that sense, that relation to history in the way that concepts function is very, very different, um, in these pragmatic nationalist and process relational traditions of theology. And in that sense, if radical theologians wanted to become more material in that sense, then they already have models for like working through that. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. And that leads to the second upshot, which is they're actually not as tied to the idea of like a singular all-encompassing reality. Most of them are breaching forms of epistemic or even ontological pluralism that cultural anthropologists who are all reading uh, James Dewey and Whitehead, whether it's like Michael Jackson on one end or Martin Sobransky, uh, Eduardo Viviero, um, um, Elizabeth Polvinelli, like they are all already there. And they've been writing these books for the last 20 years. And they've been giving models for how to approach questions of sociology, of anthropology through a politically attuned, ontologically pluralist lens. And 
from what I saw, specific to the theological concerns that um, that Crockett is going for, I'm going to pull. I did pull up this quote because I knew I was going to touch on it. Um, he's engaging, trying to constructively engage Mary Jane Rubenstein's pan theologies, and he says, "quote I am affirming." Rubenstein's pantheology as a species of radical critical theology, not to discipline or domesticate it, but somewhat as a Trojan force, because her pluralist pantheology works in and against radical theology in transformative ways so that radical theology can become more pantheist and more pluralist, that is, rhizomatic along the lines of Deleuze and Guattari. This means radical theology needs to more explicitly reconceive divinity as eminent, self-exceeding, relational, changing, and multiply perspectival. I am worried about, I, worry is too strong a word. I am paying attention very closely to the ways in which radical theologians, even though he's saying he's trying not to, avant la lesa, right? Not to discipline or domesticate, he says, but it still prioritizes this kind of history in way of relating to particularly a post-Hegelian paradigm. I think a cheap example of this, and not to completely throw him under the bus, but I don't particularly love Caputo's radical works in radical theology, and I think his hist historical reconstructions of different options in the philo in um, in philosophy of religion. He basically just says there's a Kantian and a Hegelian form. There you go, and I'm just like that erases an entire century of work, and now all of a sudden. Because of this uh, imminent concern for climate change, radical theologians are saying, we got to care about science. And I'm like, yes. And I, I think you raise a really good point, Justin, about the politics of citation, right? Like, who the fuck cares? Let's just get it done. And at the end of the day, I'm also a pragmatist. I'm like, does it light you up? Great. Let's go for it. Like, let's run with it. And also, I'm like, but that has a, a certain inertia that conscripts it into a tale of modernity. And William James is like super clear about this, that he was going after the scalp of the absolute, by which he understood the entire intellectual tradition of the modern West to be going after. And he was just like, we got to get out. We have got to get free. We have got to get beyond this story that we keep telling ourselves. And I keep trying to tell people that like William James is doing that. And also that William James was singularly inspired in particular by Bergson, right? And so there you have that like cloud already. You have James's interest in the Gaia hypothesis through Fechner and Spencer. You have this kind of um, French temporality interest through, um, uh, through Bergson. And that can lead you into Jean Vol, Gabriel Marcel through Deleuze, but it definitely it's uneasily, I'm not saying completely at odds, but uneasily with the kind of historical imbrications that led to the linguistic term. And pragmatists, besides like analytic Rordian pragmatists, they never thought the linguistic turn was all that interesting. I would, and this is why I, I wanted to start earlier with the the sort of historicization, right? Because I yeah. think I think that's right. I think that's that's absolutely right. But what I would want to push back on is the implication i think of of what you were just saying which is that radical theology is defined by the linguistic turn that it is a component of uh, there was certainly a period right there was a period of of a couple decades where it was deeply embedded within within that linguistic turn right but it didn't originate there 
and it isn't there now, right? So if we, if you think of like, you know, I kind of have that rough three periodization of radical theology, it's really only want the middle period where you have that linguistic turn. And so I guess I only say this, right, to say that I, the idea of radical theology engaging metaphysics, for example, to use like an overly general term, on the one hand, that, that feels really new. Another way I think of, of thinking about that, right, is that this is a return. Because in the originary version, with, with some exceptions, um, but the majority of the early radical theologians were deeply invested, right? You know, they, they were a bunch of Talikians, right? Ontology, metaphysics, these were absolutely central to the projects that they had. Their conception of secularity was rooted in a conception of what the natural sciences were doing to the modern world. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I think you're right about the linguistic turn. I would just be a little wary of completely subsuming radical theology within within that linguistic turn because it didn't start there. It's older than that turn. Uh, yeah. And I think it's always had a slightly different project going. Yeah. Point taken. Um, I'll have to think about it more. My initial reaction is then a general uh, relationship to Nietzsche, right? So uh, a number of pragmatist historians, particularly John Patrick Diggins, um, but there are others. Uh, uh, kind of relegated a lot of just continental thought in general and as French Nietzscheans. And the relationship, <laughs> the relationship to Nietzsche then, particularly with those early Death of God, you know, particularly Altizer and Hamilton, in their relationship to Nietzsche is, is interesting because again, you can you can get all of the not the panache, right? Like you can't get the the edgy, the dark, edgy Nietzschean, you know, flirtations with nihilism out of James in the same way. Although James had plenty of nihilism in him, um, but you don't get that same flirtation with nihilism that inspired so so much of like continental philosophy. But you can get a lot of the conceptual resources around perspectivalism, in particular, and. I think the metaphysical non-starter in between those two camps, let's just go right back into the ground. Like when Altizer, Cobb, and Neville were all fresh, very young, and writing really, really weird new books, right? And Neville's very clear. He's like, oh, nobody wanted to talk metaphysics when I wrote God the Creator. He's like, I couldn't believe that they that it got published. He's like, nobody wanted to talk metaphysics. Um, he's like, I... I didn't think that that kind of Nietzsche in turn was quite the thing that, and so what I'm saying is a non-starter is where you get a death of God theologian who would, who would affirm not all of them will, but occasionally you'll hear people say, um, and I did see, I couldn't tell you what book it's in now, but I, I remember reading Altizer considering the option of there was a God that was like ontologically a being and existed and something that we did killed him. And that is like a non-starter for um, any radically empiricist or other post-Talikian, which that's a whole other conversation. But almost all of these pragmatist theologians are like very big fans of Tillich. Um, so I think there, there might be something to that. Like you touched on uh, at one point, you were sort of alluding to the, a difference along aesthetic lines. Yeah. Right. And then for some reason, yeah. I, I at the same time, I was thinking in the background of this conversation, I think there's something of also a differentiation between a, a commitment to radical eminence and still holding on to or allowing for forms of transcendence. I think that's also a non-starter for, for some people in this conversation. Um, yeah. And if and if you take that example you're giving of the the most 
strident, robust metaphysical rendering of Altizer's death of God, where yeah. it is, you know, understood as no, God really died, you know, and it's yeah. sort of like this ontological collapse or whatever you want to, however you want to describe that. And, and that being a complete non-starter, I think there's something within that matrix of difference that maybe gets to the question that I think you're asking. I'm not sure I'm offering a real robust response here. Um, yeah. I'm just sort of intuiting something. But Justin, you were going to say something as well. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think an interesting question to ask about that. So I find that the most fascinating aspect of Altizer is the fact that he, he rejects the language that God literally died. Because yeah. I just straight up asked him, I was like, did God literally die? And he says, <laughs> not literally, but ontologically. I find this the most fascinating what? thing ever, right? Um, and so oh my God. I, think part of, I think part of this comes out of, you know, it's um for him, literal is the language of the fundamentalist and ontological is the language of the theologian. Um, so part of it is that he's playing with that language intentionally. Um, I find this fascinating because I, on one hand, I, I kind of don't really think it's true, right? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think there's something really profound to affirming it. Um, okay. which is that what Altizer is willing to do in that moment, I think is out empiricist, the radical empiricists, because what the suggestion that I think the, that the radical empiricist rejection of that is yeah. hinged on an assumption that the most absolute doesn't change. Yeah. And what Altizer's commitment is that everything, absolutely everything, the absolute itself being itself is subject to history for Altizer. And I think there's something very cool about that affirmation. I don't know how to respond to that in any other way than what might come off as snarky, but that's kind of textbook person, James. Like, yeah, like yeah. They, are, they are very much like, I mean, James is very, James has, James always was an ontological pluralist after about 1890. Yeah. Um, you know, he wrote Principles of Psychology, uh, this two volume, which there was no discipline of psychology, right? Like yeah. most people, most people in um, in his era referred to Kant as a psychologist. And so he's writing these principles of psychology and he works himself out of positivism in the midst of writing that over the course of um, 12 years. And after that, he like he is a radical empiricist in this ontologically pluralist kind of way. Um, and he announces as such. This is why I kind of reject the idea that one would talk about James as a pragmatist, but not a radical empiricist, because he announces radical empiricism years before um, he announces pragmatism. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and so for me, in my interpretation of James, there's this larger umbrella of like what radical empiricism is to him. Yeah. Um, and pragmatism is like a, a methodology for settling metaphysical disputes within that. Um, and he doesn't quite say it in ways that I wish he would have, but he absolutely means that as any kind of debates whatsoever, including political ontology. And yeah. and for James, there there is no perspective of outside, and there is no one viewpoint that could sum up the entire world. Something always escapes, right? He says, the word and trails after all of our attempts at finality. The word and trails after all of our attempts at finality. Um, and, and so in that sense, I would agree with you that a lot of radical empiricist or process relational theologians kind of somewhat naively and not naively, but like somewhat dismissively went through and said, well, whatever we mean by the absolute, whatever that is, it's unchanging, not, not necessarily unchanging, but like unconditioned in the Talikian sense. Yep. And then, right. and then if we're talking about forms of 
you know, sociological attachments to God images that no longer command a certain existential efficacy for us, then that's not that's not what we're going to do. I do think they abdicated that kind of social responsibility. And that's where I'll hold a lot of these uh, theologians feet to the fire and say, where were you when we needed to talk about these intense sociopolitical issues? You know, and one of the perfect encapsulations of this is on the Dick Cavett show in the debate between Paul Weiss and James Baldwin. Paul Weiss was a Yale philosopher who was Robert Neville's mentor. And you just watch that debate and you're like, wow, James Baldwin just out out empiricized the, the philosopher. Um, and it's amazing. And also, for me, that is where I find the psychodynamic theorists of religion who were deeply impacted by radical empiricism, Gordon Allport, Eric Fromm, Ernest Becker, um, they were talking about the loss of these God images and the way that they transform uh, through time and how they function sociologically. That's where, for me, I do have those split allegiances um, that converge on a Jamesian radical empiricism. And that's also why I'm like, I'm not a theologian because I'm not interested in describing the, the attributes of the divine according to the best science that we have. Like I'm interested in learning from them and working with them, which is yeah. why Keller and I have struck, struck out such a, a generative relationship. But at the end of the day, what I'm writing is a, a pluralistic ontology for radical empiricism or for, um, for critical social theories, because I want to do something with this theory. And I think critical social theories need to learn something from theologians because they basically have just neglected all of theology as if it's inherently regressive, which mm -hmm. is just, you know, we share that uh, frustration. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I, I really haven't read that much Altizer because I'm like, cool. And then I move on, you know, like I just, it doesn't grab me in that same existential sense. Yeah. And I think for me, when it comes to thinking about how could radical empiricism and process and radical theology sit together, you know, how could they mutually inform one another? How could they productively dialogue? These sorts yeah, of right. questions. Justin, you know, this is a question that I'm constantly wrestling with. Yes. Like much, much to your chagrin. So like, you know, these no, are, no, no. These I mean, I, I think this is I think this is, is one of the big questions, right? I think this is is makes sense. And the place I would want to set this question is geographically is maybe a way to put it, which is the fact that I don't think it's a coincidence that all three of these traditions emerged in the United States first, right? That these are deeply rooted here. I don't think that's a coincidence at all, right? You know, I think a, a place to look for where you can kind of root this, it would be something like the transcendentalists, which I think are oh, equally yeah. Yeah. influential on all three of these movements in really profound ways, right? Even if you think of something like the Nietzscheanness of radical theology, Nietzsche loved Emerson, was obsessed yep. with Emerson. Yep. That's right? a and great callback. I love that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, um, I'm thinking of, you know, radical theology as much as, you know, you can point to, you know, Hegel or Nietzsche or Heidegger as influences radical theology. You can also point to Moby Dick, right? That these yep. there was this really fertile period um, where you have the transcendentalists and Herman yep. Melville and Walt Whitman. And, and th I think that's creating the soil from which all three of these movements would eventually sprout. And I think if we want to think about what it looks like to construct the rapprochement between them. I think one of the ways to do that is to go back to those figures and ask what was it in somebody like Emerson that was so fertile yep. in different ways for these three different movements. Yeah, I I definitely I mean, I tell everyone, everyone 
go read America or go read Cornell West's um American Invasion of, of Philosophy, right? Just go read it because he tells the story the best. Uh and the fact that he's not talked about more as like a canonical um pragmatist is is <laughs> one of the major problems of pragmatism as yep. a whole. Like and, 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 and that's uh, right. We just have to be open, right? That's a racial thing. I think it's a racial thing inflected by his actual like popular popularity. Yep. Right. And so, yeah, the way that he tells that story of of Emersonian powers of provocation, you know, um, all of that, like, it's great. And so I'm just like, go, go fucking read him. Like, just go read him. Um, such a good book. And then Lewis Manan's uh, Metaphysical Club is great at at unfurling that period of reconstruction when pragmatism was supposedly born. And, you know, James takes that in a straight line because James's father, if this makes the podcast, I will remind the listener, James's father was one of the most prominent Swedenborgian mystical pastor theologian guys who wrote many books and basically had a kind of metaphysics that you would say is closer to Hegel than anyone and that's what James was kind of living into and almost like regretfully distancing himself from. And, and so you have to read, you know, lines from his, his lectures on pragmatism when he does talk about God and it's laced through, it's not systematic, but he's just like, well, God may be a gentleman as we are told he is, but whatever the God of heaven and earth may be, he can certainly be no gentleman because uh, his his services are much more needed in the sweat and dust of our everyday life than his dignity is needed in the Empyrean, you know? And at that point, you're just like, geez, that's a great quote. Where did that come from? You know, and, and I think the varieties you can see that that sort of Swedenborgianism like really comes out in his. You can just tell that it's it's not just an intellectual curiosity with mysticism. No. He, no. you know, he's he's going to huff as much nitrous oxide as it takes to see God. <laughs> Absolutely, and the fact that James scholars have basically ignored, I should say, the the, the kind of most important James scholars, whether it's, it's Cooper or Myers and Richardson or you know McDermott or whoever the fuck you want to talk about. They basically ignored his three-decade relationship with many spiritualists and helping to found the American uh, Institute for the Psychical Research. Um, and yeah, like his varieties of religious experience, it, there is a way to tell the, the James's development through his works in a kind of looping chronological fashion in which the varieties of religious experience is actually the preface to, or the the run up to a pluralistic universe, and those two works are separated by five years. And sitting in the middle of that is his lectures on pragmatism. But he was almost forced to give an account of his pragmatism because of what he said in 1898. Um, and so there's like he's he like announces radical empiricism in 1895 with will to believe. And then he says, you know, there's this method called pragmatism. And then he tries to move on to like this more like ontologically pluralistic way of rendering reality through experience and varieties of religious experience. And then so many people gave him shit for pragmatism that he had to like answer them. But then he then he uh, unfurls uh, a pluralistic universe uh, in a series of lectures. And that's it was just before those lectures, which he gave in Cambridge, that he wrote a letter to his brother who was living Henry. Um, who was living in London, and he said, I'm going after the scalp of the absolute. Um, and so that's that's the quick and dirty of that like 10-year period where he is wrestling with these kind of broader metaphysical claims and trying to navigate a way that returns the earth of things to its rights, is what he says. 
Yeah. I mean, I think this kind of genealogical exploration is really fascinating and, you know, maybe it's something we should um, pursue kind of, or at least keep exploring. I mean, I find it to be a little bit more productive than why isn't Crockett citing so-and-so, you know, I mean, (laughs) despite the, despite the very good points that you made, I just, you know. I'm, I'm, I'll I'll temper myself and say I'm I'm with you in that sense. Um, My confusion is less on the actual citations and more about the fact that I know that like Crockett knows these people and like even reads them in like deep ways. And so like Austin Roberts, a good friend of mine who also studied with Catherine Keller reminded me or or told me for the first time, whichever it was, that Crockett is one of the blurb guys for Roland Faber's new like Mm -hmm. giant tome on Whitehead. And I'm just like, that is so fascinating to me because to me, there's so much fun territory to explore and advance upon by working with these traditions who have worked out their relationship or their or different debates in the sciences. And it's not that you have to. Ah, you gotta yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that you have to. It's genuinely like no. I'm, I think there's there's a lot that's potentially generative in the conversation yeah, between just like, process thought and and radical theology. And that's something yeah. I've been that's something I've been trying to explore uh, for a while without sort of just completely. Well, I don't know. I, whenever I have this conversation with uh, Justin or or with um, um oh, he's about to he's about to try to just make him one tradition again. <laughs> it's just, no, that's not what I'm trying to. Fuck you. I'm just All messing right. up this. Go one. ahead. You had you had one more question. You want <laughs> this, this is what I have to deal with. Hard <laughs> life. life. Go ahead, Justin. Wrap it up. All right. So, um, taking your your critique sort of broadly of radical theology on board. If you were to give to radical theologians one text that you could give them for this radical empiricist area, yeah, but we're all going to read it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we all get together. We're all in a big. We're all in a a a, a big Facebook messenger group. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but if you could give one one book that you think they should all read that would positively inform the sort of next few years of of radical theology, what book would you suggest? I'm dumbfounded at that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, mom, man, guns, guns to your head. I, what? Guns to your head. You're about to kick off an entire new generation of uh, theology oh and philosophers. I don't even know. Like, <laughs> I don't. Jesus. Um, my next book. Um, kidding. Um, the. I think it would be really fun to see radical theologians with a commitment to this kind of post what what I take to be um fitting within this kind of broadly post-Hegelian paradigm really try to wrestle with with Robert Corrington's work um, I might say Nature Sublime. It, it to me that's a it, he's got thirteen books I think spanning thirty years, but to me that's that's actually a, a bit of a hinge book between some of his his kind of first decade or so of books and then moving forward into from like twenty thirteen until now. Um, Nature Sublime because he. He's a radical empiricist in a certain sense. Is it because of his like take on naturalism or like what is it about? Yeah, that, that so, he, think be so he's he's really mystical. He he definitely is has some deeply Talikian and even Heideggerian streaks to it. Um, he has 
Uh, he has developed uh, what he calls uh, an ordinal metaphysics or an ordinal phenomenology. And what he means by that is based on his commitment to ontological parity, uh, which Deleuzians will notice is very similar to like the university of being. Um, and for ontological uh, parity for him means that uh, everything is real in the way that it's real. And so the, one of the tasks of philosophy is to phenomenologically roll through experience to understand the sets of connections um, that each what he calls natural complex uh, exhibits uh, and the traits that it has um, and then build up slowly build up a, a kind of theology out of that. And the whole purpose or the whole point of saying that everything is real in the way that is real is also to say nothing is more real than anything else. One of the, one of the kind of red herrings of the intellectual tradition of the modern West is actually it's attempt to police reality and say what is real and what is not right. So you don't, you don't even get Marxist concepts of false consciousness uh, without some basic commitment to policing reality in that kind of way. And so for him, yeah. For him, that's it's not that there haven't been attempts to do that, but that that's a sociological and psychoanalytic issue. And right. making distinctions about reality is a pragmatic and strategic matter that is laced with interest, power, all yeah. of that. And 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 thank you so much this has been a ton of fun uh, yes yeah, great uh, thanks guys to, to, I'll, to, I'll, to, I'll read some quarantine i'll get back to you all right <laughs> and then we'll uh then we'll do it again all right then we'll save the world <laughs> <laughs> have right, a man. great one it's good talking to you thanks all right Good one, guys. Bye. Thanks again to AJ. Uh, really appreciate the provocation uh, and the conversation, and we'll we'll be sure to share this. Uh, with Clayton, who I, I think does listen to the show on occasion, so it'll be interesting to get his response whenever we uh, get around to wrapping up the energy and change stuff. And that's it. See you next time.